Neon One makes software solutions specifically built for nonprofits. You can finally have your donor management, fundraising software, program management, and nonprofit operations all in one place. Learn how Neon One can help your nonprofit create long-lasting relationships by visiting neonone.com backslash weareforgood. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Becky, what's happening? I'm I'm excited to like give the community an exhale today because we know a lot of you and we've been getting a lot of information and feedback from you all that you're really anxious and trepidatious about what seems to be an impending recession that's coming toward us. And it's like, what does that mean to us now? We know what it kind of meant uh, pre-pandemic, but now that the world has shifted and the way that we interact um, is so different and the digital explosion that we're sitting in, you know, between purpose and impact in our businesses. So it's my great joy to introduce Dom. Dominic Combs. He's the CEO and founder at Be Generous, and he's also the president at Giving, GVNG. And he is just an expert in building resilient organizations, um, particularly in fundraising practices for economic downturns and challenging times. But I got to tell you a little bit about Dominic because your story, Dominic, is extreme and amazing. <laughs> and I love the winding nature of it. He's a three-time venture-backed entrepreneur and philanthropist with this interest in fintech, nonprofit, charitable giving, and how to fuse them all together. So he's raised over $120 million in venture and philanthropic capital in his career. So we think he knows what he's talking about. So he is also just trying to revolutionize how people donate to nonprofits through this advent of the first-ever philanthropic credit product. And Be Generous is just that. And we're like, can't wait to dive into what that is and what that means to the sector. And I just got to drop some of the stuff you casually have buried at the bottom of your resume, (laughs) which is like you sit on the board of Forrest Whitaker's foundation, Val Kilmer's foundation. You're a member of the Forbes Nonprofit Council. And I just think, you know, yours is an incredible story. We can't wait to hear it. So get into our house, Dominic, and just let us get to know you. And thanks for making time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be with you guys today. And I'm excited to uh, be able to share some of my insights about the industry and what we're doing. And of course, what we've built at Be Generous. I think it's going to be a great conversation. I do too, because I think your story is, I look back through the layers of some of it that we've seen, it's really at the intersection of so many hands coming to the table, whether that's um, business or philanthropy or the everyday donor or tech. You've worked in so many different circles and it appears that you have just put hands together and the way that they can. But we don't think that just happens. We think that, you know, how we've lived and our lived experience and where we've grown up really informs where we are today. So we want to know about you. Like, take us back. Where did you grow up? Tell us about little Dominic and how he was pulled into this work. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's So it is a pretty interesting story. I know I'm sure everybody says that, but I, um, I was born in um, Asia, actually. So um, I lived in um, China and Hong Kong, 
Um, I was born in Hong Kong and I lived there for uh, first four years of my life, which was a great experience. I then moved to London, England and lived there for about 10 years. And it's kind of a wild story because um, so my grandfather um, you know, grew up very poor. And when he was 16 years old, he dropped out of high school to sell cameras to, to essentially try to make some money for our family. Um, and he started this small camera shop in London called Dixon's and grew that into the largest consumer electronics company in Europe today. Um, so now that that company has uh, 45,000 employees, 2,000 stores. I mean, it's just, it's like Best Buy, essentially. It's like one on every street corner in the UK and Western Europe. And so he he ended up getting knighted by the Queen of England, Queen Elizabeth, which was incredible at the palace. That was like just unbelievable. And then he ended up getting into the House of Lords. So he's Lord Stanley Combs. He's 91 years old and he's in the House of Lords. And I, I tell the little bit backstory because he um, doesn't even have a high school degree and he built this incredible electronics empire. So I like to think that my somehow some of my entrepreneurial uh, skills come from him. Um, so, th- so then I moved to LA, went to high school here, and then I moved to university. I, I moved to New York City, went to university and grad school. And basically, that's kind of where my journey into what I call Philtech, philanthropy technology, really began. I graduated from Columbia University. I'd studied international affairs and economics. Um, I did my, ma- did my master's degree. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, like a lot of people when they graduated. And so I decided, well, what's everybody else doing? And like my whole graduating class went to work for Wall Street. Surprise, surprise. So I was like, I, I guess I'm supposed to do that too. So, you know, young, naive, didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I went to go work for Wall Street. Um, and uh, I was at some of the, the, I was at two of the big banks. Um, and I was not happy. <laughs> it's just to put it mildly. And I came to my, um, I came to my boss one day abruptly and I was like, I- I'm quitting. And he was shocked. And I quit in order to write articles for a think tank at $400 a pop. Um, so, I mean, literally I was, I was broke. Like I was, I was writing three articles a month. Um, so I was making $1,200 a month at a think tank in Washington, DC. And I was so happy, even though I couldn't make my rent and I was struggling. I was so happy doing it. I was like, this is what I want to do in my life. Uh, forget banking. Um, and so I, um, I interviewed actually um, on Afghanistan. I did an interview on BBC World News about Afghanistan because I had written my senior dissertation at Columbia on Afghanistan. And um, through a really round, strange series of, of coincidences, I ended up meeting the ambassador of Afghanistan. And he hired me as a uh, political aide. Um, dur- this is during the war in Afghanistan. So essentially, I joined as a political aide to the Afghanistan ambassador during the war in Afghanistan. It was this incredible position. I, I literally, I'm not exaggerating, was representing Afghanistan at the United Nations in various committees. Um, it was it was a wild experience. Um, so I d- did that for a bit. And then I decided, um, well, actually, what happened was I got a call from somebody in the chairman's office of the Senate Finance Committee. Um, and they were looking for a um, a political associate or a political advisor. And I thought, this is this is it. This is what I want to do with my life. I wanted to be in national politics. Now, remember, this is well before the craziness of the yeah. last eight years. This is like <laughs> things were normal, wow, normal. Yeah. It. <laughs> it wasn't like the, the, the disaster that it is today. Um, now I wouldn't. I mean, you couldn't pay me to even come to Washington D.C. in the current <laughs> environment, but I, it was a lot more normal. So I ended up taking this position, and I was the youngest. Um, associate in the chairman's office of the Senate Finance Committee. I was in my like mid twenties, and I was on Capitol Hill. I was working in the upper chamber in the chairman's office. It was incredible, and so I was there for a while. And um, 
really got to see how government worked. I mean, like really, really in-depth got to see how it worked. Very interesting experience, but ultimately came to the same conclusion, like I'm not helping anybody. You know, like I did this work to help people. That's why I wanted to go into government. You, do, you definitely don't go to government for money, right? So you go into government to help people. I wasn't helping anybody. And so I'm like, there's, there's got to be, there has to be a better way where you can help people and make some sort of sustainable living and live your life in a meaningful way. And so I ended up after, you know, a while on the Senate Finance Committee, I came to the chief of staff there and I said, thanks, but I'm, I'm moving on to my next thing. I'm still searching. I'm young enough that I can make these reckless decisions, basically. And so I came out to L.A., and I met up with a guy named Trevor Nielsen, who had started a company called Global Philanthropy Group, um, which was one of the first private philanthropic consulting firms in the United States. And he, uh, we basically, I joined and eventually was running business development for the firm. And over the next four years, that company grew into really becoming the preeminent philanthropic consulting firm in the country and was then acquired by Charity Network in 2017. And during my time there, I, you know, I helped start, run and operate the foundations for Kobe Bryant, Madonna, Miley Cyrus, Eva Longoria, John Legend, Forrest Whitaker. Uh, our clients were Facebook and Gucci, American Apparel, the Getty family, the Buffett family. It was like this incredible group of people whose philanthropic work I got to, you know, I got to help build out and work on. So I really developed a strong understanding of philanthropy having done that for, um, you know, for years. And then after the acquisition, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do with my life, profit and purpose helping people and waking up every day and trying to make the world a better place, but making an income that I can sustain myself off of because the, the, the money on Capitol Hill, like the not possible to live in this environment with, with the paycheck they gave you, um, which at the end of the day is, is self-defeating, I think. So um, at that point, that's when I started giving that company I told you about earlier, which is um, the simplest way to call it is, is Forbes called us to Shopify for nonprofits. I ran <laughs> I that company that. for six years as um, a CEO. Company's done great. And then at the beginning of 2021, I came to my board and I'm like, I'd like to step out as CEO. And they were shocked. These were my VC investors. I raised a couple rounds of VC financing. They were shocked. They were like, why? This is your company. And I said, because I'm starting something new um, called Be Generous. And they asked me what it was and I explained it to them. And um, not only did many of them invest in Be Generous, but they gave me their blessing and said, we'd like you to be the president of giving and stay on the board and uh, help us find our next CEO. So I found our next CEO. He's great. He's been there for two years. I'm the president of Giving Today. I'm on the board. Giving is awesome. And I started this just incredibly cool company called Be Generous, which I'll uh, I'll tell you guys about later. But that's been the journey kind of between, you know, being born essentially and now. Um, holy heck. Yeah, your Did story. Did you think is... we were about to get that story when I asked that question, John? I mean, it it is so important to ask because I see your granddad's like vision and moxie uh, in you, and you positively light up when you talk about it. You're in the space you need to be in, and it's just it's just fascinating. I mean, it runs in your blood; it's in your bones, you know. And I think we love talking to founders just because of how they show up. They create the change they want to see in the world, and you've done that numerous times over. But you also just have this startup mentality about you, you know, that you don't see the walls. And I think that's got to point to your international experience and just your broad worldview kind of colliding at this moment. So, you know, we're big proponents of this idea that nonprofits need to think more like a business, not to become business and like do all those things, but like just adopt some of the principles, especially in startup life that could really revolutionize. We call it grow, adapt, disrupt, repeat is some of our values. Can you kind of paint a picture? What do you think are some of those principles from startup life that nonprofits could adopt today and really infuse energy into their work? 
Well, it's a great question. I think I think the first thing to understand is that um, nonprofits are corporations legally. I mean, legally, when you incorporate a nonprofit, what you're doing is you're incorporating a corporation at a state level, right? So that's just like the misnomer of a nonprofit. I mean, it's a terrible name, nonprofit, by the way, because it, it, it prevents innovation from coming into this space because for better or worse, what drives innovation in the United States is the almighty dollar. For the most part, there are true believers and true altruists out there, but people are incentivized to innovate in industries because they think at the end of the day, they can make a sustainable living. They can make a lot of money, whatever it might be, whether you agree with that or not, that is definitely, I believe to be the case. And so if you call something a nonprofit, you are taking out the primary motivator of innovation in the United States. And so I think the name does not do a lot of service to the industry, right? Um, which is the reason that I, I like to say the industry has been largely ignored by the big Silicon Valley tech companies, which is why my career being at the intersection of profit and purpose and being in fintech specifically for nonprofits is not only kind of unique, but also you can have success in the industry without battling 500 competitors because there aren't 500 competitors, yeah. right? That's kind of the point. So I think to answer your question, um, you know, when you're running a startup, I'm, I'm running my third startup now. Um, especially one that's venture capital backed or VC backed, the number one lesson I would give everybody is that you need to be almost delusional in your optimism, right? You need to be so optimistic and so delusional in that optimism that you think you can do everything because otherwise there's no point in even starting these ventures. There's no point in, if you don't believe, you fundamentally believe that you can do it, don't start. That's honestly what I would say, because it's so difficult. It's so difficult to successfully start and run a nonprofit. It's so difficult to successfully run <clears throat> and potentially exit a startup that you have to have almost a borderline silly belief in yourself that, like, oh, of course I could do this, right? <clears throat> why, why wouldn't I be able to do this? This person did it. Of course I could do it. Well, the reality is like, it's actually a relatively small percentage of people that run these organizations, startups or nonprofits to, a, to an actual level of sustainability. And you have to believe when you're raising money from other people and you're asking them for their hard-earned dollars, whether it's an investment or a philanthropic gift, you have to believe like that you're going to be able to sustain the venture. And I think so. You, I think you have to have this sort of like delusional optimism in you and, and self-confidence, if you will, in yourself. Luckily, I'm a little delusional and I've always been that way. It's also delusional self-confidence too. Like I, you know, my whole life, people always said to me like, you're, you're very confident and not narcissistic because I'm, I do, I'm not like that, but confidence and belief in yourself is a different thing. And you need that. You really do need that. It's actually a skill that needs, that you need to have in order to do something like this, be a CEO or executive director or whatnot. So I think that's, I mean, there are many lessons, but that's one that I think is really important psychologically to sustain the ups and downs of a journey like this. Um, so I would say that's the most important one. I could not agree more with you. And I think that we talk so much about mindsets on this podcast, because when you're doing something um, as, you know, to your point, reckless or crazy as going out and asking somebody for millions of dollars, or, you know, that seems ludicrous to many people. And every fundraiser has had somebody in their life say, I cannot believe that you ask somebody for money. You know, I could never do that. And I think your point is well taken that if you have the mindset of, well, I'm not asking somebody for money. I'm asking somebody to join me in this opportunity that's going to change the world and we think it's going to fill their hearts. That's a shift. And that can bring that confidence. And so love this challenge of sort of embracing the innovation, embracing the risk, failing forward and knowing that that's a part 
of the process. And you're right. We don't have a lot of space or elbow room to try that, not in our budgets and nonprofit, not with what we want to do in our programming and our mission delivery. So talk to us about like that mindset of resilience and talk about how we can build resilient organizations and some of the key pillars that can make us sort of lean into those moments rather than lean against them. Yeah, I, I, it's a great question. I mean, the first thing is, you know, like um, what percentage of people when they're starting an organization to start up a nonprofit are trying to raise, let's say, $100,000, probably a high percentage of people. It's relatively not that much money. It's attainable. But what percentage of people are trying to raise $50 million? A lot less. Just percentage-wise, a lot less people will want that. So what I always say is, from a competitive standpoint, if you want to be competing with the least number of people, aim for the stars, right? Aim for the thing that people are not getting asked every day. Don't go ask and ask for $100,000. Ask for something that is, it doesn't have to be outrageous, by the way. It doesn't have to be 50 million. It could be a million, whatever. But whatever your organization needs to really sustain itself, put yourself in that position, be bold, and and you're going to be competing with a field of probably one. If I'm t- if I'm a venture capitalist, if I'm a philanthropist, and I have a hundred meetings that day, guarantee you a hundred meetings are going to be can you fifty k, a hundred k, one hundred fifty k, whatever it is. But if you're the one person who says we're looking for a million dollars, I'd love you to be part of that story or whatever, you're going to be remembered. You're going to be that person's bold. That person has a vision. People want to be around people like that. People want to coalesce around someone with a vision. People want to be around someone who's ambitious as hell. Um, and so I think like. I think that's the first thing that I would say, which is just aim for the stars. And just by virtue of the fact of your ask being so such an outlier in whatever field it is, you are inherently competing with a much smaller group of people for the same amount of resources, right? Um, there's a famous saying in Silicon Valley, um, you know, it's easier to raise $100 million than it is to raise a million dollars, something to that effect, right? And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, secondly, in terms of building resilient organizations, I think always, this is more of a practical tip, but I think always doubling or tripling the time and cost of doing anything is an important one for budgeting and forecasting. So if you if you really think, oh, I only need $100,000 to sustain me to meet X, Y, Z goal, you probably should be raising 250K, something in that order. And, and if you, oh, it's only going to take me a month to do this, well, probably more like three months because... I mean, you know, imagine if a couple of years ago I told you, hey, in a year from now, we're all going to be at home wearing masks and getting vaccinated and the world is going to collapse, literally. Uh, you, everyone would have laughed me out of the room. It was ridiculous, right? And yet we had the COVID-19 pandemic. Or if in 2007 I said, you know, in a year from now, there's going to be an economic meltdown called the subprime mortgage crash. Millions of jobs are going to be lost. The banking sub- sector is going to be on the border, or, you know, on the border of collapsing. Everybody would have told me I'm crazy, right? So outliers happen you know, definitionally, obviously not that often, but they do happen. And so you need to be prepared for things like that. And I think it's 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 very easy for me to preach about raising more money and having more resources and everything. But to the extent that someone can control this and the extent that they can control their own destiny and say, I'm, I have the ability to raise what I need now, I would just say plan to raise a lot more money than you initially think you need and plan for it to take three to four times as long because nothing happens according to timeline, right? Uh, there's a, another famous quote, life gets in the way when you're making plans, right? Or life happens when you're busy <laughs> making plans. Or Mike Tyson has a great quote, uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? So <laughs> as an entrepreneur, I get punched in the face 10 times a day, figuratively, and it's 100% true. You have a plan, you wake up in the morning, okay, these are the 10 things I'm going to do, and then 50 fires break out at your organization or whatever it might be. And, you know, you have a plan and you get punched in the face and then you're like, well, I got to react to it. So, you know, being an entrepreneur is in a funny way, is like being punched in the face every day, (laughs) every day. Um, So it's a good quote, I think. 
Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who also happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you both see and activate donors at every level, and Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, volunteer management, and online giving, and we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sounds like Virtuous might be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. Well, I think like threading kind of these first two kind of pillars we've talked about today, I think that there's something to what's the mindset, what's the scarcity that could be happening in people that are working for nonprofits on the front front lines of fundraising that could be even holding you back from asking for that bigger gift too, you know, because of your own limited scarcity mindset, how is that, you know, impairing how we're showing up? And I think that's something that we need to talk about because, I mean, you came from that place too. I mean, going from like, I want to say paycheck to paycheck is like article to article to like sitting across and having these kind of high level conversations, a big change of just your personal um, growth too. So I wonder if you'd speak to that. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It, 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 I think what you're getting at is a lot. Of, a lot of this has to do with mindset, and and mindset really is a sizable percentage of what I think makes people successful. Right? There's, I don't mean to be quoting all day, but there's all these interesting <laughs> quotes about this subject too. Um, you know, Thomas Edison said, "I've never failed. I've just found ten thousand ways that don't work." Yeah, and I just, I you know, that. as an entrepreneur, like it's just a brilliant quote because failure, you really can't fail if you don't accept that you've ever failed, right? If you just say, well, it's just a work in progress, I'm still working on it, then you by definition have not failed because it's a work in progress, you're still working on it, right? So I might, you know, like everyone knows the famous story of JK Rowling applied to, you know, hundreds of publishing outlets and got got rejected from all of them, or, you know, Michael Jordan got cut from his basketball team, Albert Einstein flunked out of math class. These are outliers, obviously. So I mean, there's millions of people that flunked out of math class that didn't go on to become Albert Einstein. (laughs) And I realize that, of course. But the stories are inspirational. And I think it has to do a lot with mindset. You know, uh, Michael Jordan also said, you know, you miss, or Wayne Gretzky or Jordan, I don't know, said you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And that's really the philosophy of being an entrepreneur. I mean, if you don't take a shot, you're guaranteed to miss it, right? So I think for me, uh, this is something that I could say, luckily, I haven't struggled with. I have no shame at all in terms of approaching people, asking for the things that I think um, I need or want to do. But it is for a lot of people, it is it is challenging to do that, right? They feel like they don't deserve it. They feel like they're it's inappropriate, whatever it is. But I think the reality is people are gravitate toward other people who they find to be bold, audacious, and have momentum around them. And really perception in many ways is reality. You might not really be bold and audacious and have this momentum, but if you were perceived in that way, you're going to gravitate a lot more people toward you and your mission and what you're galvanizing and what you're trying to do. So I think there's a little bit of fake it till you make it mentality for sure. Um, but this stuff really has to go, has to do with mindset, which is just so powerful. So yeah, I mean, that's what I think. I agree with you. And I also think that if you're someone who says, I'm not a bold human being, I don't like putting myself out there. It's like, I don't think you're putting yourself out there. I think the mindset shift there would be, tell that story of your nonprofit. Tell the story of the one human. Tell the story of how you saw life change because your mission exists. The superpower is how you show up and cast that vision. Just share the story because you radically believe in what you're doing and let that passion translate. 
So I, I, I think you just have this way about you, Dominic, where you can just look at creativity and tech and look at it in a different way. So if we've learned anything over the last few years, it's that creative fundraising and digital fundraising is an absolute must to innovate in advance. So talk to us about how you've seen this model and and everything else that's coming into play right now during the digital explosion. Talk us, to us about what you're seeing and what op- opportunity there is for nonprofits to lean in now. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that I think is a, is a no-brainer that I've seen happening more now, but I've been preaching, I've been evangelizing or preaching this for 10 years is why are we, why are we not in the, we meaning people in the philanthropy and philanthropy tech world, why are we not learning from all the success that technology companies have had in the e-commerce world, right? As I mentioned earlier at the start of the podcast, profit, profit is the driver of innovation in the United States or making money. That's the driver of innovation in the United States for better or worse. And so what you have is extraordinary innovation has occurred in the banking world, in the payment processing world, in the online buying and e-commerce world, extraordinary innovation, credit products, lending products, different ways of paying, new payment processors, different ways of making money, saving money, all the, the, the variety of the buy now, pay later revolution happened in the e-commerce world. The, um, the, the digital banking world, PayPal, I mean, look at all these. These are incredibly recent innovations. PayPal is less than 25 years old. Right. I mean, these companies, eBay, like think of the innovation. So what I've been sort of saying for the last 10 years, and I now see happening is let's learn from what these guys did, these men and women did, and let's bring that and adapt these tools to do something good in the world. Because that's the key here. If you can take these incredibly innovative tools that people have made to make money, by the way, and buy more useless crap, and you can say, <laughs> hey, let's let's actually use this to make to create in a to, to, to solve the inefficiencies in the philanthropic market, imagine how much capital you can unleash. That trickles down to the organizations. And of course, you hope it trickles down to the people on the ground that need the help. So I think I'm seeing that a lot now. Donate Now, Pay Later, our company, was inspired uh, undoubtedly by the Buy Now, Pay Later revolution. And in fact, I am close friends with the, the founding COO, chief operations officer of a firm, which is the largest uh, Buy Now, Pay Later company in North America. I am I am you know friendly with the CEO of PayPal, um, which has the largest buy now pay later company in North America. You know, largest buy now pay later program in North America. We have learned from these organizations about ways that they've been able to create these brilliant products to help sell more stuff to people, and we've adapted them to um, to create new ways to donate. And I see that in crypto as well. I'm sure you guys have crypto people on here all the time. My friend Alex Wilson is the CEO of The Giving Block. They're an incredible company which allows people we to- We love them. Pat's been on. Pat and Alex are friends of mine and um, and we, we we have a partnership with The Giving Block that we're creating as we speak. We're doing a joint webinar with them in two weeks. Uh, they're awesome. But that's a great company as well. Like, you know, taking, again, the promise of crypto, which was used to create- uh, essentially another way of, of fiat currency and saying, hey, let's um, let's adapt it to the philanthropic space. So I see this revolution happening partially because of COVID. It, it was sort of necessitated. And I ultimately do think it's a very good thing. And I'm pretty excited to see, you know, companies like mine and others, like where we can go over the next 10 years. Well, I mean, you know, it's the power, the thread of philanthropy that really connects us. I know it's a part, huge part of your story. I mean, how cool to be on the ground floor with some of these incredible creators in the space, artists that use their, I hate to use the word celebrity, but that to just power people and get people active. I'm, you know, we love small stories. We love big stories. What's one that kind of resonates in your heart if you think about the power of philanthropy in your life? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, 
I think, okay, so here's a good one. Um, if you remember during the fires in, okay, so about maybe, I guess maybe like seven, eight years ago, there was something called the Woolsey fires in Malibu, in LA. I live in LA. And they burned down a sizable portion of what of, of Malibu, like really burned it to the ground. And one of my clients at the time was Miley Cyrus, the the the, the famous singer. And um, she had started a nonprofit called the Malibu Foundation on my platform, Giving, the company that I told you about that I'm I started and I'm president of now. And um, her house had actually burned down to the ground. I remember in, that in Malibu. Yeah, her. This is when she was with her ex husband and. Uh, they burned down. And so basically, you know, her rep, her people called me up and said, hey, Miley wants to start the Malibu Foundation on your platform giving. They're going to raise a couple million dollars. Let's get going. So we started it for them. And um, they raised their money through our infrastructure. And we st- they started to do all this press about it. And one day I get a call from a woman saying, hey, is this Dominic from the Malibu Foundation? I said, well, I'm the CEO of giving, but the Malibu Foundation is one of our clients. You know, what can I do for you? And she said, well, I um, live in a mobile home, like an RV home. And um, I live in the largest mobile park in Malibu and it's um, you know lower income people that don't have much. And all we really had was the beautiful views of Malibu. We didn't have a lot else. And the mobile home basically, the mobile park basically burned to the ground during the Woolsey fires, like a substantial, like 70% of the park burned to the ground. These people's homes, these people's mobile homes. Um, she says, is there anything you could do for us? And I said, yeah, there is something. Let me, let me talk to Miley's, Miley and her team and see what we can do. So we spoke to Miley's team. And they ended up giving them a huge grant um, to basically rebuild their lives. I mean, this was not like fluffy stuff. This was like, I need money to live. Uh, one of the one of the women said to me, my grand, my mother's 92 years old, lives in this mobile park. Her house, her, her, part, her mobile home burned to the ground. She has nothing else. Can you help us? And Miley gave them you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And I got a call like a week later. This woman was in tears. She was like, literally, you saved our lives. Like we had nothing. Thank God for you know that you had this infrastructure and whatnot, and that and that they were able to give us this grant because we had nothing. And that was like, you know, you don't see a lot of the impacts on philanthropy that quickly and that directly. You know, usually it's a multi-year process, and you have to, you know, what's the ROI on the impact and how do you measure impact? But this was like as direct as it comes. And this woman was going to be homeless. She lost her home. She was ninety. Her mother was ninety-one years old. They didn't have a lot. And through the power of philanthropy, it was we were able to. Um, I would say save her save her life basically. Um, so I just go back to that a lot, you know, especially during tough days and just remember like why I started be generous, why I started giving, why I do what I do, because it's not easy to start these companies. It's in fact, incredibly hard, um, incredibly hard trying to convince VCs and banks and everything to give you, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to, to do this, to, 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 you know, um, but I, I think stuff like that is meaningful and really affected me personally. So I, I always remember that story. I just think it never gets old that that one-to-one human connection of saving one person. And, and your story is profound because it's, it wasn't just a one person. It was, it was an entire community and, and bravo to that woman for f- making the connection, making the call and standing up for her community. That was a great one. So Dominic, we end all of our conversations with the one good thing. Um, what would be your one good thing that you'd offer to the community today? It could be a quote or a piece of advice. You're the quote king. I'm expecting you to bring the thunder down on this one. <laughs> oh man, all the pressure now. I think the, a very good piece of advice would be that, um, that failure is a prerequisite for success. You know, we, we always we always see on the news 
you know, all these famous wealthy people. And we always think, oh my God, they must have just, you know, become an overnight success. And I heard this other funny quote, it took me 10 years to become an overnight success, right? <laughs> I love that quote, right? Yeah. But I mean, the reality is if you look at almost any successful person, think about the people that you admire. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, they failed multiple times before they succeeded. They didn't get into the school they wanted. They got rejected for a date. They Their first company blew up and went bankrupt. I mean, whatever, right? We all have our own failures. And that builds resiliency and that builds the, 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 the mental toughness to pick yourself up and do it again. Um, so I would say failure is a prerequisite for success, however you define those two things. And when you're having those tough days and it's brutal and miserable and we've all had them, just remember that, that your hero, whoever that person might be, guaranteed you went through something similar in their own life at some point and they persevered. And that's ultimately most of the time, the difference between success and failure is perseverance. Uh, so I, that would be my sort of quote of the day. Love that. And totally agree. You know, and I think nowadays, especially with the advent of social media, it's so in inspiring when people open up and tell that part of their story. You know, I think that's really what connects us with the people that inspire us today, that vulnerability. So thanks for leading our conversation there. So let's connect up the dots. How can people find you online? Where do you hang out? How can people follow and get connected with Be Generous as well? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I, I don't have any other social media. I'm not on Facebook <laughs> or Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. Don't even go but look. I am active, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I am active on LinkedIn. It's just my name, Dominic Calms with a K, K-A-L-M-S. And um, our website is just the letter B and then the word generous.com. So it's just the letter B, generous.com. Um, my personal email is my first name at begenerous.com. It's D-O-M-I-N-I-C. At, G, at, uh, I'm at Gmail, at begenerous.com. <laughs> um, so Dominic at begenerous.com. And I would love to, you know, anyone who wants to learn more, chat, um, whatever it might be, happy to chat and uh, speak further. Well, I just want to thank you on behalf of everybody who is benefiting from the reckless and wonderful flights of fancy that our social entrepreneurs like you are chasing to help make our connections easier and to make uh, philanthropy accessible and, and democratic to everyone. And so keep going. We're rooting for you and keep us posted with what's happening with Be Generous. Thank you so much for having me on. I mean, awesome, awesome time with you guys. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, I hope we can uh, chat again soon. Indeed. Thanks Take care, so much. my friend. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing, if you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. 
can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.